This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance by L.A. Kaufman. When millions of people took to the streets for the 2017 women's marches, there was an unmistakable air of uprising, a sense that these marches were launching a powerful new movement to resist a dangerous presidency. But the work that protests do often can't be seen in the moment. It feels empowering to march, and record numbers of Americans have joined anti-Trump demonstrations. But when and why does marching matter? What exactly do protests do, and how do they help movements win? In this original and richly illuminated account, organizer and journalist L.A. Kaufman delves into the history of America's major demonstrations, beginning with the legendary 1963 March on Washington, to reveal the way that protests work and how their character has shifted over time. Using the signs that demonstrators carry as clues to how protests are organized, Kaufman explores the nuanced relationship between the way movements are made and the impact that they have. How to Read a Protest sheds new light on the catalytic power of collective action and the decentralized, bottom-up, women-led model for organizing that has transformed what movements look like and what they can accomplish. How to Read a Protest the Art of Organizing and Resistance by L.A. Kaufman, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We've talked about guns a lot before, and... I hate guns. I would strongly prefer that they didn't exist. And I don't, to put it mildly, take claims by some on the American radical left that we can win power by force of firearms very seriously. But while I do support gun control, I also don't support much of the liberal gun control movement because it has, ironically in concert with the NRA and Republican right, worked to make the war on guns a central facet of American mass incarceration. The upshot is that we have the worst of all worlds— a society flooded with guns where the paradigmatic white good guy with a gun treasures his weapons as a bedrock constitutional right, even as the supposed bad guys with a gun, often black men with a felony record, are mercilessly prosecuted simply for carrying. This is a core contradiction of American gun culture, and a revealing one at that. White affluent people carry because they claim they must protect themselves against apocalyptic criminal threats and their right to do so is vigorously protected. Poor black men who carry do so because they actually do often face serious threats of lethal violence in their daily lives, but they're incarcerated as a result. And those black men who do have a right to carry, and many do, risk getting shot by the police. Just look at the cases of Philando Castile or Jamel Roberson. My guest today is George Joseph, who has an important new piece up at Slate, on former Attorney General Jeff Sessions' war on guns, which has led to a sharp increase in federal gun prosecutions, often hitting ordinary poor black men with felony records who are simply carrying for their own protection. Before we get rolling, 
At The Dig, we do our best to provide the most ruthless criticism of all that exists, the razor-sharp analysis that the left needs to understand the world in order to change it. And we can do that because listeners like you support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Plus, $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 a month gets you a copy of either Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more gets you one of those books plus a bunch of other left-wing titles. So, if you haven't already and appreciate what we're doing here, please take a quick moment to support us at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's George Joseph, a reporter at The Appeal, focusing on police, prosecutors, and systems of surveillance. If you want to reach him securely, he has information on how to do so at Twitter, GeorgeJoseph94. And I happen to personally know that George really likes secure communication because he's one of those people always messaging me about mundane things on Signal, which I always forget to check. George Joseph, welcome to The Dig. Hello, thanks for having me, Dan. Jeff Sessions, a truly reactionary law and order stalwart, initiated this huge change in how the Department of Justice prosecutes gun crimes, particularly the crime of being a person with a felony record merely caught in possession of a gun. Explain what the law is, what Sessions did, and what kind of people are getting locked up in federal prison as a result? There's a federal law known as 922G um, and, and a couple other ones that basically ban the possession of a firearm of any person with a felony record in the country. And the issue with this federal law is it's much harsher than um, comparable laws at the state level which ban felon gun possession. So, for example, in a place like Alabama or Arkansas, if you have a felony record and are caught in your car uh, with a gun, you may face probation time. You may not even go to prison. But on average, at the federal level, uh, you're going to get about five years, max 10 years. And uh, the majority of these cases, uh, 53% as of last year, are convicting black defendants at the federal level which is vastly disproportionate to their population nationally. What is the the change that that Sessions made? What was the status quo prior to him becoming attorney general? This all kind of started in the early 1990s, and we'll get into that with rising fears of crime and the federal federal prosecutors taking on more everyday cases, such as gun cases. Um, It really spiked in the Bush era, but under Obama, it had gone down quite significantly, not to nothing, but it had been in steady decline throughout his administration. But within uh, within a year and a half of Sessions being in power, um, he his Department of Justice had broken all federal gun prosecution records uh, previously seen, carrying it up to a rate um, of prosecutions per month that had never been reached even at the height of um, the Bush era's uh, gun, 
gun prosecution regime. Um, and this is very much in line with Sessions's um, larger call to return to quote unquote tough on crime politics. He felt that the so-called crime increase, which was a fairly slight increase that we saw towards the tail end of the Obama administration was because law enforcement had been sort of um, held back from being tough on violent crime. His solution, and which he announced as his centerpiece solution, was to prosecute these kinds of federal gun cases. But it got very little attention nationally, um, in part because there's so much bipartisan consensus, both from NRA-type groups and from liberal gun control groups, about the value and validity of such an approach. Yeah, I think that is one of the most important things about the gun control debate is that we think of it as the most polarized subject in American politics. But what that obscures is this fundamental consensus around cracking down on what the NRA would call bad guys with a gun, Mm -hmm. which are (laughs) prototypically black men with a felony record with a gun who are caught merely often just possessing a gun, not in any sort of otherwise criminal act with a gun. And in our story, we we focus in on uh, northern Alabama, uh, where I spent time in Birmingham and greater Birmingham area. And looking at a lot of the cases that um, federal prosecutors are bringing, they would mirror that NRA rhetoric saying, we're going after the worst guys, the puller, uh, trigger pullers, um, the people that are making our communities unsafe. But when you actually read through the dockets, the people that are getting caught aren't, you know, the heads of criminal organizations, people that are planning murders. They're people who just happen to be caught in a car with a gun. And in a lot of neighborhoods with very, very violent uh, crime rates, people feel a need to have guns. Um, and so they're going after these fairly low level, easy to prosecute cases and racking up um, federal prosecution numbers, which look impressive in the media and to kind of both sides of the gun debate um, without really addressing issues of why people feel so unsafe that they need to carry guns in the first place. To put a face on this, tell the story of Adarius Montrell Sims, who, who was picked up for gun possession in Birmingham. What happened to him and why was he barred from possessing a firearm in the first place? Mr. Sims is a Birmingham resident who we profiled in our piece, and he had basically gotten a felony record because in Alabama, having two marijuana possession charges on your file makes you automatically a quote-unquote felon. So because of that, he was banned technically from carrying a firearm. But he lived in public housing. He had just gotten kids, and he felt, having seen carjackings and shootings in his neighborhood, that he needed to have a gun with him. One day, a few years ago, he's driving home. He's coming back from hanging out with friends. Uh, he falls asleep at the wheel and gets into a car crash. Um, he wasn't drunk. It was just an accident. But uh, as he was taken to the hospital, police officers looked into his car and they saw a gun on the passenger side floorboard. Um, They took the gun, they ran it, figured out his record, 
and he was charged with it. But he was charged at the state level initially. And so, as I said earlier, um, the penalties for such a charge were not very severe. In fact, he was actually allowed to sign up to, for what's called a gun diversion program, which allows people to work off their um, criminal charges without going to prison. Um, so he was just going to classes and uh, kind of working it off that way. But at, during this time, an ATF agent met with him and told him, hey, we know about this gun. We could charge you if we wanted to federally, which is a harsher charge, but we're not going to because of your record. And so he goes on living his life. He has another kid. He gets a new job. Two years later, he thinks, you know, everything's past him. One day, all of a sudden, while he's at work, he gets a call from his father who says, these federal agents are at my house. What, what's going on? Um, he cooperates. They pick him up at work. Turns out he's arrested for that same gun from two years ago found in his car, this time on federal charges, which, as we said, means he's facing maximum 10 years for the same exact incident that he thought he'd already previously adjudicated at the state level. And, that, and this is because there's no, there's no double... There's jeopardy, no double jeopardy for, between state and federal crimes. You can get charged twice. Right, exactly. So the reason that two years later, this ATF agent's promise of discretion has suddenly waned is because as soon as Jeff Sessions comes into power in D.C., he immediately issues memos to federal prosecutors saying, I need you to prioritize felon gun possession cases. He then issues a later memo in October of 2017 saying every prosecutor will be judged on the basis of how you know aggressively they prosecute these kind of cases. So in a lot of places, including northern the U.S. District of Northern Alabama, where Mr. Sims was a resident, um, federal prosecutors are simply going through uh, cases that have already been adjudicated at the state level and saying, hey, we can just take this federal. He's already admitted to the gun possession. It's a, it's a no-brainer guilty plea. And because of that, someone like Mr. Sims is suddenly being arrested, their life derailed, and their mugshot published in the local uh, Alabama press as one of the worst of the worst, one of the trigger pullers. Yeah, trigger pullers is the, the language used by Jay Town, who's Northern Alabama's U.S. attorney and, and Sessions language is the leading violent offenders. But Correct. you've looked at a bunch of these cases. You also spoke to a accidentally far too candid local prosecutor, <laughs> I think, who's like, oh, no, we're just sending them any case. I spoke with a lot of prosecutors and police in Birmingham and the northern Alabama district in general. And despite the the federal government's claims that they're only looking at the worst of the worst. They're using prior intelligence to figure out who their targets are for these kinds of federal gun prosecution cases. People pretty candidly were telling me that, no, we just send uh, any defendant we can to the feds because it's less work for us and they get more time. And some law enforcement even had a problem with that because they felt that the punishment didn't fit the crime. And in the case of Mr. Sims, you can really see that. One of the most important things about your story, and you referred to this a little bit earlier, is that you actually spoke to young men in Birmingham who choose to illegally carry guns, and mm -hmm. you asked them why they did so. Tell me mm -hmm. about the men you spoke to 
and what they said. I know that some of this got cut from your piece, which is a shame because it's a perspective that's so seldom heard in the media. And because it's so seldom heard, it allows for people who, who don't live in these young men's reality to project their worst fantasies on, on why these guys are carrying. So when I was in Birmingham, I spent a lot of time in West Birmingham, which is the poorest, segregated, almost all black side of the city. Um, it's a kind of post-industrial place where uh, a lot of the storefronts are empty. There's not many jobs and the violent crime rates are much higher than what major cities were facing in the crack era um, right now to this day. So when speaking with uh, men uh, from one neighborhood in West Birmingham called Ensley, a lot of them wouldn't even hesitate when asking why they chose to carry guns when they have these felony records and know the risks that come with that. They felt that they had a much higher short-term risk that they were facing just walking around their neighborhood every day. And that short-term risk outweighed the kind of long-term potential consequences that they knew um, could come from being caught with possessing such a firearm. Better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what one of them told me. I have a, a a few quotes that I wanted to read if okay. Yeah, please. Um, One is from a a guy who we'll call L who's a resident in his thirties. He has a violent crime from his twenties and thus a a felony record. Um, He said that gun possession bins quote, don't work for us. Um, He being a person with felony record tries to avoid carrying his gun, but feels like he sometimes has to quote, I'm not going to carry every day. But if I'm out somewhere I'm not familiar with, I'm going to carry, he said, gesturing towards his waistband. They might approach me the wrong way, and I need to check them or defend myself. Um, So, like, as you can see in that quote, these people have a very direct knowledge of the dangers that come with carrying a gun from law enforcement. They understand the risks, and they try to do things to mitigate those risks, either by only carrying at certain times, or hiding guns in certain places where they know they can quickly access them. But regardless, they feel that the kind of communities they're embedded in make it impossible for them to escape guns. Um, Another story that I was told when I was there was a man who we'll call E, who is also a man in his uh, late 30s or early 40s with a felony record. And He recalled a story uh, of earlier this year, he was just driving with a friend and his friend had gotten out of a gas station. His friend has a clean record and forgot his, his car, his gun in his car. Um, But he was driving with a guy who was in the backseat and who was high on synthetic marijuana. So he went, uh, took the gun, put in his waistband and went out to go take a piss. He didn't want anything to happen with the gun. Um, by the time he gets back, he hears these cops yelling, get the fuck on the ground. And, uh, it turned out the guy who he said was tripping had told the police that he, they had robbed him. Now, eventually the guy drops the charges cause he was just high and being paranoid. But now this father E is concerned that 
he could be brought with these federal charges merely because he was caught in the right, wrong place at the wrong time, carrying a gun which he didn't want to accidentally be discharged. So I think that anecdote kind of illustrates the degree to which guns are uh, an inevitable part of the fabric of these communities, and it's impossible for people to escape their reach to some degree while attempting to live safely. And so criminalizing people for merely living in those neighborhoods and trying to survive um, is something that is really unfair and um, doesn't help anyone. It, it just further isolates them from their communities and their ability to kind of survive and thrive in this world. Well, there's a really telling irony here because guns are unfortunately a huge part of the everyday fabric of American communities across the board. What's so remarkable and revealing about this is that, you know, you look at Wayne LaPierre, the chief executive of the National Rifle Association, who warns that Americans need guns because he said, quote, in the world around us, there are terrorists, home invaders, <laughs> drug cartels, carjackers, knockout gamers, rapers, <laughs> haters, campus killers, airport killers, shopping mall killers. And so what's so revealing about this is what it reveals about the racist premise of American gun culture, because white affluent people are are building these bunkers to protect themselves from a phantasmic MS-13 threat and their right to do so, to, to arm themselves as basically as heavily as they want, is considered a bedrock constitutional right. Poor black men who actually have a real reason to worry about getting shot are being prosecuted for doing just the same, carrying a gun. And so we have this thing that's that's actually disturbingly very shared throughout American society, which is the which is gun culture and the mm -hmm. the the perceived need to carry a gun. But the people who have the most plausible actual reason to carry a gun, the most plausible fear that they might need to use a gun in self-defense are the ones who are prosecuted for doing so. It's a deeply mm -hmm. revealing irony. And I'll say that this goes obviously beyond Birmingham in, in surveys like a recent one that the Urban Institute in Chicago, uh, conducted in Chicago with hundreds of young people. They found that the vast majority of them said that even if they knew they were going to get caught uh, and arrested or even serve time, they would still carry their guns. Um, and that the likelihood increased dramatically for someone to carry a gun if they knew someone who had been shot or if they themselves been shot at which obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, so until we do things to make people actually feel safe in their neighborhoods, there's there's no getting around the fact that they're going to carry what are mostly illegal guns given their their context, uh, their over-policed context. And so... Yeah, so I mean, because then that's an important point. Gun violence is obviously an enormous problem in places right. like Birmingham, in places like the South Side it's of Chicago. It is by the data an enormous problem and what most people who live in in a community like the one you're reporting on in Birmingham would describe as one of the top problems facing their community. The problem with that is the problem with the way that problem is currently addressed is that the carceral state doesn't do anything to get at the root causes of either gun possession, what drives people to feel like they need to carry, or 
the gun violence that results from so many people carrying guns and then the other factors that cause them to use those guns. What mm-hmm. I know this wasn't the main point of your piece, but what sort of other alternatives are out there that might actually address the the root causes and stem the the blood flow in in places like Birmingham? So I'm going to start with just a broader answer and then go into some more practical answers. From what the academic literature I've been able to read, it seems like the problem is not that just people get guns because they have some economic interest in doing so, for example, ensuring the you know security of their drug transactions. It's that um, underground economies that thrive because of criminalization, such as drug markets, um, require people to have guns, which requires other people to have guns. And so you have this vast diffusion of guns taking place. And with those guns, the vast majority of the sort of crimes that take place with them aren't, you know, purely economic crimes. They're just the crimes that take place when 14-year-olds have access to weapons that are way more powerful than their undeveloped brains can necessarily handle at the time. And it's inter- um, interpersonal feuds f- uh, exactly. that are continuously fueled via retaliatory s- cycles of violence. And that's something that people in Birmingham would always say, like, this isn't about you didn't pay me. It's about, oh, you insulted my yellow shoes. Or, um, or you when, shot my when cousin. you flood a neighborhood with guns because you make drugs criminal and then thus make guns necessary, everyone starts to have access to them because there's kind of a need to once once you pass a certain critical point um, and, then, and then mistakes are made. Um, so, so there's this broader problem of the kind of hyper-criminalization through policing, which leads to a need for people to carry guns. And then when you have this even more enforced policing, gun policing, that kind of thing, oftentimes in places like Chicago, we see that people now are, rather than just carrying guns on their person, keeping guns all over the place. (laughs) And so then there's even more guns just in bushes and in trash cans and leading to all kinds of problems. Um, So I think the the broader issues of the daily criminalization of day-to-day life in places that are underinvested in and have been for decades and thus render their residents a kind of surplus population um, make this violence inevitable. And unless we kind of address the root causes of that underdevelopment and underinvestment, um, people will continue to engage in these underground economies out of necessity and with that, that gun diffusion will continue and the kind of everyday accidental, mistaken, emotionally charged gun violence will happen. Um, Now, in terms of practical short-term steps that cities can take while, you know, the drug war continues to exist. And while capitalism and systematic residential segregation continue to exist. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. (laughs) It's it's complicated because there's a lot of programs that try to do this carrot and stick approach. They'll say, you know, oh, we'll try to apply for this job. And if you don't get a job and turn your life around, then we're going to, you know, go after you, criminalize you, um, arrest you for sure. And so I, I think, uh, 
one thing that was really telling to me in the um, Urban Institute um, survey was that young people said that in Chicago that they felt that one, I think it was the only one that gave a majority of kind of agreement among the gun holders was that they felt that if they had access to jobs, that would actually make them less likely to carry guns. Um, that is not really a anti-violence kind of initiative. We hear a lot from city leaders, guaranteed public sector jobs, something like that, that gives people kind of high quality work that they can look forward to. Um, there's a lot of um, promising initiatives with kind of anti-violence work that, you know, quote unquote, credible messengers, people who have been in that situation are doing. And it, the work of Patrick Sharkey has shown that that kind of nonprofit work is making a difference. So I don't think there's any one answer, but there are a bunch of smaller things that can be done that don't criminalize people and help give them reasons not to pick up the guns. Um, but as long as that sense of danger exists, people will continue to pick up guns. And as long as we live in a society flooded with guns, this this fantasy right. that, that white America can have this extremist gun culture and simultaneously keep guns out of the hands of poor black men. I mean, it's it, it's it's an impossibility. And the contradiction of that impossibility is what leads to this this caste based Second Amendment in practice, this racial caste right. system, Second Amendment system in practice. And when people don't fall into the, the categories they're supposed to, they either get prosecuted or if they do have a right to carry someone like Philando Castile, they get shot by police. Right. I, I think that speaks to a deeper history, which a lot of listeners may be familiar with about, you know, whether it be in pre-colonial or Virginia or I mean, early colonial Virginia or post-Reconstruction South, or early 20th century Jim Crow America, there's all kinds of gun prohibition, gun licensing laws that are targeted specifically to ensure that Black people aren't able to carry guns, to ensure that Black people aren't able to defend themselves from white supremacist terror campaigns. And so someone like Jeff Sessions certainly fits into that lineage today, I would argue. My last question is recently, obviously, Sessions is out and Trump has announced his support for bipartisan sentencing reform, which has gotten a lot of attention. And it may turn out to be one of the very few good things that such a hideously terrible president does. It seems like it was Sessions' departure that allowed for Trump to to support it. But the legislation is quite modest. It'll only impact a fraction of federal prisoners who in turn are only a small portion of the entire prison population in this country. And what's most concerning to me about it, though I though I hope it passes for the sake of these people getting out of prison a little bit earlier, what worries me is that is that Trump's emphasis is that he's softening up on nonviolent offenders while cracking down on violent offenders, which makes it seem right. like policies like Sessions, gun crackdown, will continue without much protest. And I think this reflects a, a broader fraught dynamic within the movement against mass incarceration for sentencing reform is how to push, how to go after the low-hanging 
fruit of of easing penalties for so-called nonviolent offenders first, because if we can keep people out of prison for a little more time, then that's that's good. But how do we do that without throwing so-called violent offenders who often, as your reporting shows, are not actually violent, but gun crimes um, are often described as such, without throwing them under the bus? Well, that's a that's a tough question. Um, I think there's there's a great danger um, in whenever we kind of do these paired tougher on violent crime with uh, soft on so-called nonviolent crime initiatives that we're actually going backwards and potentially putting in policies that will increase our mass incarceration system. Um, and in the case of this federal gun prosecution program in particular that I reported on, it seems very clear based on Trump's campaign rhetoric and his kind of policy proposals floated through the campaign, as well as the rhetoric that you just mentioned, that federal prosecutors will continue to prioritize uh, this um, so-called focus on violent gun offenders because there's no one on the political spectrum or major institutions that's giving them any pushback on it. It's seen as a win-win. And I think we should also keep in mind that most uh, people in prison uh, are in there because of quote-unquote violent offenses, especially at the state level. So if we're really going to address the epidemic of mass incarceration in the country, we have to be real about not viewing um, the answer to uh, incidents of violence as keeping people in cages for years. We have to be able to acknowledge that reality of violence and provide communities with ways to address it. Um, So I, I hope that this piece helps helps people see the complications behind so-called violent, nonviolent crime distinctions. Well, George Joseph, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Dan. Thanks so much. George Joseph is a reporter at The Appeal, focusing on police, prosecutors, and systems of surveillance. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that police are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but not least, do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Music